When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast. In this episode, we discuss the number of summer friendlies in the United States, ESPN's continued coverage of the Women's European Championship, the impressive statistics of cord cutting, and a possible merger in the international streaming world. Plus, we also have questions from you, the listeners, in the listener mailbag segment. On the panel today, we have Karta Krishnayer and I am Kyle Fanzler, filling in for Christopher Harris. So, Kartik, I'm curious, have you been watching any of these uh, these summer friendlies in the U.S. over the last couple of days? No, uh, I haven't, although uh, I am uh, scheduled to go to a match in Orlando on Saturday that um, I'm, uh, I'm not necessarily enthusiastic about the match, but I am enthusiastic about interacting with, with Arsenal and Chelsea. But I have not watched a single one of these matches thus far. I'm curious, is there like any reason why that is? I know you speak a lot about how a lot of these friendlies are, are cash grabs, particularly for the teams in Europe that are coming over and playing, but it, I think a lot of these MLS teams, they seem to want to take them pretty seriously. I was watching the, the Charlotte-Chelsea game, for example, that was last night on Wednesday, and the fans there, they were taking it pretty seriously. The players, they won in that penalty shootout, they were celebrating Chelsea, I mean, for their part, they just kind of cast it aside like it was any other game, especially in a preseason friendly. Do you think there's any reason why the MLS teams would take it so seriously compared to the European teams? Yeah, they they, they always have. I mean, I, I, I can speak from my own experience when I was on uh, uh, the side of the debate wanting MLS teams to beat European teams to prove it to, to, to uh, journalists in, in Europe and in the UK how good MLS was. I even flew out for a couple of these friendlies. I went to Chicago in 2006 to see uh, a Chelsea friendly and see see uh, that match. I went to, to Washington in 2004 or five to see, same thing, uh, DC United versus Chelsea. And I went to another friendly, I want to say in 2007 or 2008, because uh, at the time I was very much into saying, hey, we belong, we need to prove ourselves. Now, now maybe it's just age and, 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 and experience with this. I realized those friendlies had no impact. And if anything, they were disruptive to the MLS season and to those particular clubs' seasons. I do uh, really like the League's Cup, as I've talked about many times on this podcast. And, and I do think that that will bring some meaning to international matches for MLS teams a year from now at this time. Because I believe July is, is probably the month we're going to see that League's Cup take place, June, July time period. I think the thing that stood out for me most from this last week or so was 
was Phil Neville's comments for Inter-Miami. Ahead of the Barcelona game, he called it the the biggest game in the club's history. It was just a, a regular Tuesday night friendly against Barcelona. And I want to ask you, Kartik, do you think that these friendlies, you already mentioned how they might hinder MLS teams. How do they? How do these friendlies hurt Major League Soccer teams? I mean, it's one thing to say, like, oh, it takes away from the focus of the Major League Soccer season, or there could be other more important competitions to focus on, but are there any other ways that these friendlies against European sides could actually hurt Major League Soccer teams? Yeah, I think that's the way you just articulated it, because MLS teams are not as deep as uh, teams in Europe, uh, teams in Mexico, etc. So, um, and I, I've talked to Seattle has a very different view of this Seattle uh, fans and people around that organization, although um, they lost seven nil to Manchester United <laughs> once upon a time, that might have been <laughs> what ushered in this, uh, this attitude, but they, they, they're very much of the opinion there that it takes away I and mean, Seattle's a club that's also chased a lot of U.S. Open Cups let's keep in mind so they've been fighting on two fronts uh, and CONCACAF Champions League more recently with with their triumph there um, they feel like with squad depth and with uh, really the quick turnarounds in MLS particularly this season because it's condensed due to the World Cup um, you're, you're, you're straining your side you're, you're, you're testing your depth you're putting a lot of emphasis and, and also not just from a, a pure playing standpoint, but PR media standpoint, your players have to be available. Your players have to go through a different routine for these European friendlies because there's more media attention that sort of just takes away from the preparation and the ongoing continuity of the MLS season. Uh, it's preseason for European clubs. It's not preseason for MLS clubs. Yeah, I think it's also important to note that this is off the field, too, because you, I think the argument that Major League Soccer and the clubs, the individual clubs try to make is that it's going to bring in new fan bases. For example, I'll, I'll cite the Chelsea-Charlotte game. They had a whole section of Charlotte supporters, you know, as you do the whole main supporter section, but then you flip to the left side of the pitch, and it's nothing but Chelsea supporters. I think the argument they're trying to make is that if they can bring in these Chelsea supporters, these Barcelona supporters, these Arsenal supporters, they're going to want to stay around and watch maybe those teams that they're watching play their favorite club. Does that actually work, you think? Does it actually bring in those fans for an extended period of time rather than just one game in the middle of the MLS season? Um, no, it generally doesn't work, but there are a few. I mean, you may get a few new Charlotte fans out of that, particularly because they're a new club. But when the Chicago Fire hosts uh, someone in a friendly or D.C. United, uh, I don't think it, it moves the needle at all for them established clubs now will minnesota beating everton 4-0 maybe move the needle uh potentially i mean but i, I this is minnesota has always kind of played well in these matches i remember when minnesota the minnesota thunder were in usl a predecessor club of this current club a sort of a predecessor club i don't want to get into the corporate history but um they they drew burnley uh, when burnley the year burnley went up to the premier league for the first time and uh uh, sometimes you get results like that. I mean, I was uh, working in the NASL when we brought Bolton, who was then a Premier League club, a very established Premier League club, to St. Petersburg, and the Rowdies beat them 1-0. We thought it was going to be a gateway for all these new fans in the Tampa Bay area uh, to come to Rowdies games. Eh, maybe the bounce lasted for a couple of weeks, and then it was just, okay, Premier League season started. We're going to watch those teams on television. Yeah, I think Inter-Miami will definitely be hoping. Well, the result's not going to help. Inter Miami losing 6-0 to a Barcelona team that I think has been down in the dumps for the last couple of years, but it was actually the first time in Inter Miami's, uh, albeit young, history that they uh, sold out every seat in their stadium. Of course, they had to watch Barcelona put six past them, including what I will say was a beautiful goal from Memphis to Pot. I don't know if you saw that one, Kartik, but 
Um, I was watching on uh, on Fubo TV on uh, Teo de Ene, and there was a lot of confusion as to what game was actually airing because when the game was scheduled to start at 7:30, there was uh, a replay of the U.S. Women's National Team game against Canada and the uh, Concacaf Women's Championship, which obviously was uh, the day before, a couple days before. And so I'm, I looked at Twitter because uh, obviously I was not the uh, the only one confused. People started freaking out. They weren't going to be able to watch uh, Inter Miami play Barcelona. And I don't know if you saw any of that, Kartik. I know you mentioned that you haven't really been watching them, but did you see the, the kind of discourse that was happening in regards to the confusion? Yeah, yeah. And also the, the fact that a lot of people had to watch it online, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that... Uh, that 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 was unfortunate, but I think again this is goes back to the fragmentation we talk about, Kyle, so often on this show and on on the website. Um, you've even done a, you've even written a few articles about this. The, the the fans who watch U.S. women's national team matches are completely different fans than watch Barcelona, uh, and maybe in many ways different than who than who watch the Inter Miami team. So you have. Uh, uh, to the NA having to placate one fan base, even though obviously the match had been the previous night, but people like me fell asleep. I fell asleep at halftime. I even tweeted, <laughs> hey, I can't stay up for the second half. It was nil-nil. So I actually, I appreciate that they showed a replay the next day. Um, but there's like, there's these fragmentations within the soccer fan base where in order to placate one set of fans, you're oftentimes angering another set of fans. Do you think that bridge can ever be gapped? Is there any hypothetical situation where maybe we're not so fragmented as soccer fans? Can we all maybe come together in in one unison to watch the sport? Is that even a a remote possibility, you think? Uh, I think it is. I think there has to be a little more tolerance and understanding. I mean, there are certain people who will never watch MLS or USL, right, in the U.S., or or people who, for, um, for... I guess, uh, you know, their own reasons won't watch women's football. Um, But I I feel like there's more emphasis on the whole now. Uh, So I I am encouraged by it because uh, years ago, there was no coverage of Liga Amekis in English. None whatsoever. Now there's a lot of coverage. There's a lot of interest in that league uh, in the United States among English language fans and English language media. I'm seeing some MLS-centric uh, reporters cover European football more and some European-centric reporters cover MLS, USL, uh, and the scene here in the U.S. more. So I think it's happening, but it's, it's very, very slow. And again, that's media. Maybe in terms of fans, it's never going to happen. I think it's also interesting to note, not just in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. women's national team has a, a massive fan base. Everyone everyone seems to want to watch them when it comes to the international scene. But I know you've been following a lot more than the Summer Friendlies is the uh, European Championship on the women's side this year, uh, which is hosted in England. And I know you've been watching a lot of that, and obviously you're going to get to your game to watch this weekend is part of that tournament. But uh, in the kind of your watching of sports this this past couple of days you noted the uh the England Spain game which if anyone did not watch that game I highly highly recommend to go watch the highlights because it was a, a dramatic game the England second goal was just an absolute beauty of a goal but uh that game obviously went to extra time so can you touch on that a little bit Kartik yeah so I think ESPN their studio team as we've talked about the last two weeks on this podcast uh, with Chris has been somewhat raw. I mean, obviously, Seb Salazar, K. Murray, very experienced, very, very seasoned as hosts, very good as hosts. But the studio talent, Emma Hayes, Steffi Jones, 
not quite uh, there yet. I think they began to hit what we would call midseason form, right, in the U.S. with their coverage yesterday because it was such a good game because I think there was a greater knowledge and interest of England to begin with in that studio, uh, particularly with Emma Hayes. But also uh, Spain has given us such uh, such a good, entertaining product in the last World Cup where they pushed the U.S., remember, in this round, all, or round of 16 it was in the World Cup, but they pushed the U.S. in the knockout stage also. Uh, maybe came, you could argue, the closest to beating the U.S. in that World Cup. Uh, at least in terms of of of, of um, the balance of play, and uh, and they gave England uh, one of the pre-tournament favorites and the host all they could handle uh, yesterday. So I think ESPN's gotten better, uh, and they're beginning to hit a stride in mid-season form. No, it's not the perfect studio that we saw for ESPN at Euro 2016 or at World Cup 2014, but it's I think now kind of on par with what we saw for Euro 2020 last summer on the men's side and uh, looking forward uh, to the rest of the tournament. And one quick thing, Kyle, I want to mention. Um, I had said last week on the podcast, which we recorded after the first day of the Open Championship, that NBC wasn't pushing um, the Premier League. Almost immediately after we recorded that podcast, we were um, subject to nonstop promotions for the Premier League and reads from Mike Tirico uh, during the course of the weekend. So I do want to give NBC props. They, uh, they really came through with the cross promotion and it was really the only non golf product they were promoting during the weekend. Cause they know the natural link between people who would watch the open championship and watch uh, the premier league. So a uh, very, very good job on that from NBC. So that was part of my soccer viewing weekend in a way was the open championship. Yeah, definitely fitting. I was watching the, uh, the open as well. I think uh, NBC, maybe they were listening to you, Kartik, but they, uh, they saw that they were in the UK and said, <laughs> Hey, we got this great product. We gotta, we gotta push it. It's also in the UK, that natural connection. It was there. So it made sense, but yeah, that was actually a, a lot of fun to watch that that Sunday round for Cam Smith. I could go into the whole thing about golf. I've really taken it up to watch that over the last couple of weeks and months. But yeah, it's a that was fun. I, that, I did notice that as well. That they were trying to push that. I didn't notice in the Thursday Friday rounds that they weren't pushing it, but I did definitely notice it on on the weekend rounds. So good point there. But Karthik, uh, you want to talk about the not necessarily the game you want to watch this weekend, but. I want to go back a little bit to the, the fragmentation of sport, and I was watching, I already mentioned the, the game between England and Spain, and how they went to extra time, but someone that really stood out for me there was the home fans in England, and it's one thing to not be playing in the Premier League stadiums or Wembley every game, obviously they could sell that out, I, I, I believe they sold out the opening game at Old Trafford, and I think the, the final at Wembley will also be sold out. But they're playing at these smaller venues, and despite that, the fan atmosphere in England is noticeable when they're playing uh, in the in the knockout stages of the European Championship, and they score this great goal in extra time, and the whole fans are going crazy. It's, it's limbs, if you will. How important is it for European women's soccer? Obviously, we talk about how the U.S. women's national team has a great following, but European women's soccer, it's really been on the rise, especially looking at a club like Barcelona, who is selling out uh, Camp Nou for a Champions League game, and uh, Lyon's doing the same thing. But when at the international stage and the international scene, how important is it for a side like England, which obviously has such a strong men's following, to repeat that on the women's stage? Oh, I think it's critically important, and this is a reminder of how Europe is very different than uh, North America and South America in terms of priorities. Uh, I'm finding... So much more interest, as you said, Barcelona sold out the Camp Nou. Uh, Atletico has done such a fantastic job filling their stadium 
for um, the Calderon at, at times for uh, for um, women's matches. Juventus has had some good crowds. And then obviously in England, we've seen Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal, and now Man United really push their women's teams. I don't see that translating to the international game. There's less interest in international women's football in Europe than there is in club football connected to men's club teams uh, because club supporters are more die-in-the-wool than international team supporters in Europe. It's the opposite in the Americas. I, I freely concede that. But um, So I think it's very important England get as far as they can in this uh, tournament. I think it was very important for the Netherlands in 2017 to win the Euros and give uh, uh, fans of the women's game there some reason to be into the national team game in addition to just uh, women's clubs in, in Holland. So I I think it's, it's critically important, and it's a reminder again where – in the U.S., the U.S. women's national team is the gateway for women's uh, soccer fandom. In in the U.K. and in on the continent, it's actually the clubs that are the gateway for national team fandom. Very, very different culturally. I'm trying to think about the American club scene, and the NWSL sides, more often than not, are separate from Major League Soccer sides, and that's obviously not the same in Europe. I mean, uh, FC Barcelona, Femini is a direct correlation to the men's team. Manchester United, Manchester City, and Chelsea, and Arsenal, they all have women's teams. So they can use their popularity on the men's side to kind of promote the women's side, and that obviously translated in great success for Barcelona when they were having just immeasurable winning success on the field for the women's team this past season. Could that help? I mean, it's hard to draw the comparison between American soccer and European soccer on the women's side, but I know the American MLS fan bases, they don't really have the same kind of following, obviously, of, of European teams, but there, could there be some benefit, you think, to maybe, I mean, I'm not going to say restart the entire NWSL, but this is all wishful thinking and all hypothetical, of course, but could there be a benefit to maybe starting up a women's team that is a direct correlation to a men's team for example if Atlanta United had a women's team or uh, I know Seattle and Portland are very intertwined with their women's teams but is there a benefit potential benefit there if there's a direct correlation direct one organization between the men's team and women's team um, yes and no I think that this is a age-old question in the U.S. and uh, what we found is a lot of women's uh, fans fans of the women's game have been wanting to be very careful about this because they feel like organizations will emphasize the men's team over the women's team. Portland under Merritt Paulson, irrespective of everything that's happened in the last 12 months that's come to light, um, not making a commentary on that, but um, on, when I say this, uh, that um, they have put their women's team on kind of equal footing with the men's team. When men's sides have owned women's sides uh, in the U.S. Uh, in the past, other than that, it hasn't quite been the case. We see the situation in Orlando right now. I mean, that's uh, close to you and me. And, and uh, they, they are in no way putting their women's uh, side in any sort of shop window uh, comparable to the men's side. And this is what angers a lot of women's soccer advocates in this country. And there's also a previous relationship with Soccer United Marketing that didn't go so well for the Women's League, uh, the previous Women's League, WPS. So there's there, there, there's a dubious nature about it. But at the same time, when I talk to people who are experts in marketing the game, they don't believe the women's game will ever fulfill its potential unless they do what you, you just suggested maybe is, a, is, is a, a potential, which is to have the D.C. United women in, in – uh, 
in in uh, NWSL, the Atlanta United Women. Yeah, we have uh, uh, teams that are branded differently. Houston Dash is not called the Houston Dynamo Women. Orlando Pride is not called the Orlando City Women. But to actually kind of co-brand them uh, the way that we have seen in Europe, uh, that that would bring out more fans. I, I don't know, but there are marketing experts who say that at the same time. As I said, Kyle, I know so many people around the women's game who don't want that relationship. They, they think that um, those organizations always put the men's side first and um, quite honestly have a, a lingering bitterness. Maybe it, it changes with this new CBA and the settlement of the lawsuit, but a lingering bitterness that they think the men's game has profited off of the success of the women's national team in this country in a way that's not organic. So um, all of those things are, are issues that don't exist in Europe currently. Talking about Europe, Kartik, I know um, I'm looking at your match to watch this weekend, and it is related to the uh, UEFA Women's European Championships. You want to you want to mention that for uh, Saturday afternoon? Yeah, it's it's the it's the France uh, Netherlands match on Saturday afternoon. They've saved the best quarterfinal match. Although again, England Spain we talked about was really really good, uh, and maybe it can't be top, but they've saved what I think is probably the best semifinal match. Um, for, or excuse me, quarterfinal match for last. Uh, the defending Euro champions against the side that we constantly think are going to win major honors, whether it's World Cups or Euros, and always seems to come short in France. Uh, so France, Netherlands on, uh, on Saturday. Um, I think the Netherlands have um, all of their star players, Medema and, and others, back from COVID. Uh, I'm not totally sure on that, uh, but they had a COVID bout within their camp, which uh, sort of derailed them in the group stage. But they, they're here now. They're playing France in the quarterfinals. They're still alive despite some struggles at the group uh, stage. And uh, they have the opportunity to defend their title if they win this match. You're spot on, Kartik, that we always think France is that that big, bad team, despite not having the major success that – you know, a team like Germany or the U.S. has had. Why do you think that is? I mean, they have the the best club team by far historically uh, in the women's game. Why do you think they maybe lack on the the international stage? I mean, they have the players. Why hasn't it clicked for them? I don't know. I mean, this is I, you hit exactly on it, Kyle. Why I have always thought they were going to win tournaments and they haven't is Leon. <laughs> is mm -hmm. the best yep. club in this sport by a, a, a country mile, right? I mean, I, I know I was at a match, Leon lost to an NWSL team a couple of years ago. I don't put any, really any stock into that match. It was their preseason. It was the middle of the season for NWSL, um, just like the friendlies we were talking about earlier on the men's side. Uh, but I think maybe because Leon has been so dominant in European competition on the women's side, Many of us, myself included, have overrated France uh, in every, every competition. 2015 going in, I thought France would win it. Uh, 2017 Euros, I thought France would win it. 2019 Women's World Cup, I thought it was between France and the U.S. And quite frankly, of the knockout stage games, uh, other than the final against the Netherlands, but if you take the Spain, France, and England matches, um, round of 16 quarterfinals, semifinals for the U.S., I think France was the softest mm -hmm. match of those, of those three. So... Um, yeah, I, I hold up my hand. I'm guilty, too. I think it's because of Leon that we've overrated France. Yeah, so I'll just mention, uh, you talk about friendlies and that my game to watch this weekend, admittedly as a, as a Barcelona fan, is the uh, the second El Clasico in the United States between Real Madrid and Barcelona. That game is also on Saturday, but much, much later. It's at 11 on uh, Fox Deportes. Is there ever a game, Kartik, you think that you would want to watch? Is this maybe a game that piques your attention? I know you're not the biggest Barcelona Real Madrid fan, but is there ever a friendly that you are actively looking forward to? 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, I have to say when Napoli played Barcelona a few years ago in uh, in Miami, that was the one friendly I think I've been enthusiastic about in the last 10 years because I wanted to see how an Italian club that I felt at that time had been really good in terms of the way they play under Maurizio Sarri were going to match up with, uh, with a team like Barcelona with their style of play and their legendary status. Messi was still there at the time. Um, but unfortunately, that was the summer Sarri left to go to Chelsea. We got Ancelotti and we got a different kind of Napoli. I, I still went to the match and enjoyed it, but I was really looking forward to that match because I thought it was going to be a, a real window into here's the team that I think plays the best football, the best, the most Barca, uh, pre-recent pre, uh, time Barca-type football on the continent playing Barca itself. So yeah, there are some individual matchups I will watch, and that was one of them when Napoli... Uh, with Sarri's legacy, was playing Barcelona uh, with the Cruyff and Pep legacy. What about your club, Manchester City? You know, they got a big game this weekend um, at Historic and the Frozen Tundra. Well, not necessarily frozen right now, but the Tundra of Lambeau Field. Does that about that game? It's your club. Does that game pique your interest at all? Not really. I mean, I used to watch all these Manchester City friendlies, I'll admit. I, I remember when they they uh, toured the, the States in 2010, I went to a couple of the matches in Baltimore and in Atlanta. 2011, they toured the States. I made sure I watched every preseason match uh, that they were that were they were part of that tour. By the time 2013, or it was 2014, when they were in the uh, the uh, uh, ICC, right, the, mm-hmm. the relevant tournament, I didn't care anymore. I'm like, these are a waste of time. Let's just get on with the season. Uh, even though they were going to, if they had beaten Liverpool in the match in uh, Minnesota, they would have played here in Miami, um, and I would have gotten to see them in person. I was like, ah, let's get out of this tournament. Let's not play another game. Let's not have to travel again. Let's get back to Manchester, prepare for the season. And that's kind of been my attitude since. Uh, I know... Uh, the match against Club America um, was uh, w- 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 was um, something that people were interested in because it was Holland and Alvarez's first match. Although um, Man City has been to Houston before, so it- it's a it's a thing where um, maybe they're cultivating a fan base in a particular city. The Lambeau Field thing is kind of interesting, but I'm still 
not that bothered by it. I, I'd like to get some uh, transfers in now that we've sold Sterling and we've sold uh, um, sold Jesus. I mean, I think Sterling is almost an irreplaceable player. I'd like to get some transfers in and get on the training pitch uh, at the campus, the Etihad campus, and work toward the season and instead of these, these friendlies, which kind of, um, I think, tax the team. Uh, although, in fairness, every other team City's competing with in the Premier League uh, are touring in similar fashion. So it's not like City is at a disadvantage. Um, Spurs, Man United, Arsenal, Chelsea, and Liverpool all doing their own various kind of preseason things. Don't forget about Everton. They're also a Premier League rival. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Kartik, let's jump into the, uh, the TV and streaming news. There's not too much that's changed in the past week, but... Uh, one thing that has changed is uh, right in regards to uh, DAZN possibly acquiring uh, something new. So is there any chance you could uh, touch on that for us? Yeah, it, this is really interesting to me, Kyle, because uh, DAZN has taken this very kind of uh, straight pay model to this point, a very, very uh, expensive pay model. And now, uh, according to uh, Streamable they're, they're, uh, and the Financial Times, they're in discussions to, to buy 11 sports, which is a, uh, a free platform, which you can get on, uh, on any sort of platform uh, you, you, you have, which is a, also a platform that bought MyKuju, which has uh, tons of matches, and now has a partnership with FIFA, 11 sports, in terms of FIFA Plus. So it would be DAZN going into an ad-supported free platform and in the interest of full disclosure i've been the commentator for uh, at least a dozen games that have been on 11 sports in the past uh, from here in the u.s it is a completely different model than DAZN. but kyle we know DAZN has has struggled for subscriptions in some uh regions including the u.s they've struggled for content in some regions now they would have no content problem if they if they close this deal and we're seeing as we've talked about repeatedly on this show a continuing um, shift from the model of pure pay streaming services to ad-supported streaming services. The ad-supported services, whether it's Pluto TV on kind of the general um, uh, in the general genre or uh, Eleven Sports here in the soccer genre, the ad-supported platforms are doing really well and in many ways better than the uh, the pay subscriber services. So obviously this is all just, you know, reported stuff. Nothing confirmed yet between DAZN and Eleven Sports, but you think this deal were to go through that DAZN would essentially be, at least for this side of their services, they would be shifting to more of that, that ad revenue instead of the uh, the direct pay model? Yeah, I think that that's the incentive to do this because we're seeing uh, even uh, services like Netflix thinking, hey, maybe we need to uh, shift towards more ad-based, maybe drop uh, subscription price. I can't say for sure what DAZN will do. Maybe they will absorb 11 into DAZN, uh, into the platform, and drop the, the subscriber price for DAZN now that they'll have ads supporting it. But then again, the ad-supported side may not be as lucrative for the advertisers if it's no longer on a free service. Uh, plus, I mentioned 11 has that um, deal with... Um, with um, FIFA to power FIFA Plus, although we should remember DAZN has done something similar with UEFA in terms of the Women's Champions League, which uh, they've, um, they've streamed through YouTube for free as effectively a, a promotional billboard for DAZN. So DAZN, now that I think about it, has already some experience with the free streaming side. So I think they will probably keep 11 as a standalone 
but maybe it'll be rebranded 11 by DAZN or uh, DAZN Free or some, something different. Yeah, that Women's Champions League coverage on DAZN and YouTube, as a as a neutral fan, it's been really great because you can watch all these different games for, for free, and they have all these different languages that they cover it in, so it's really, you know, it applies to a lot of people, and millions watch it every every match day, so it's very entertaining. And for those that are unaware, uh, 11 Football does have, you know, the rights to things like the Polish Extra Klaas, uh, the Northern Ireland Premiership, so they do have rights. I mean, not the Premier League or the or Serie A, none of these majors, but they do certainly serve some uh, some niche audiences. But this whole movement of sports streaming, it's been happening for years now, and there was a study recently, Kartik, that said that 73% of sports streaming service subscribers have entirely cut the cord, which is pretty remarkable to consider, especially that streaming, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, is still fairly new. I mean, it goes back to, I don't know how long, you'll have more expertise in that field than I would, but... It's, it's pretty remarkable to think that that many people have cut the cord, or maybe you're not as surprised by that number as I am. Uh, I am as surprised as you are. I, I, I'm, uh, I, it it kind of shocks me how much, um, um, how much um, people are willing to go just exclusively to streaming. And the free advertised-based services like Tubi and Pluto TV, I guess, make it easier, right? Because you, you're still able to get access to a lot of the things maybe you're losing on uh, cable television, satellite television, when you cut the cord via those services. Yep. It's, uh, I got to say, I'm, I'm one of that 73%, not that I was included. And I think it's also important to note that that number, 73% of sports streaming service subscribers that have cut the cord. That's not just soccer. That's everything, you know, baseball, basketball, hockey. Um, it was an American study, which I think is also important to note. So in the last uh, little bit of TV streaming news, uh, if you're into the World Cup coverage, Fox did open their World Cup media campaign. Kind of a, a fun one, poking fun at the fact that the World Cup is not in the summer, as it probably should be. But it does have John Hamm. Everyone loves John Hamm, myself included. He stars as Santa, who's got to, you know, change up his whole strategy because now that the World Cup is in his, to use Santa's own words, his time to shine. So uh, feel free to check out that. It's on uh, Fox's YouTube channel, uh, John Hamm, starring as Santa ahead of the World Cup. So uh, I think it's funny also they didn't touch on uh, anything else in regards to the Qatar World Cup. Like, there's nothing else wrong going on with that. (laughs) It's only the weather that's causing everyone's disturbances, so good job by Fox there. (laughs) At some point, they'll have to address it. Well, maybe not. You would think that it'll be talked about at some point, hopefully, but I don't know. I guess we don't have too much say over what uh, Fox Sports does in their World Cup coverage, or I guess maybe Fox Sports doesn't have too much say in that regard either, but uh, we'll jump into the, uh, the listener mailbag section now, and these are all from last week's podcast. Again, I was not there. That was Chris. Um, but uh, Bill says, on last week's show, there was a discussion of CBS being the current gold standard amongst American soccer broadcasters. I would generally agree, since their coverage of the UEFA club competitions, NWSL, Serie A, and even the CONCACAF Women's Championship have been exceptional. But I really have a bone to pick with them for the lackluster quality of their Brazilian and Argentine Premier League broadcasts. The commentators for both sound like they're recording their commentary with a laptop microphone, and the amazing crowd noise from these games is completely lost in the mix. Also, would it really kill them to add pause, rewind, and start from the beginning to the Paramount Plus service? Until they do that, they can't call themselves the gold 
standard. I'm curious your thoughts on that card. For me, the big thing that stands out there, because I'm going to be honest, I don't watch too much uh, Brazil or Argentine soccer, but the big thing for me is crowd noise. I think in South America in particular, there's nothing that beats the atmosphere that those crowds create. I mean, even when I would watch the U.S. men's national team World Cup qualifier against Mexico, it seemed like the uh, Estadio Azteca was relatively dull, but maybe that was just because of the limits on crowd noise. But in regards to that entire uh, comment, I'm curious if anything stands out to you, maybe the, the pause, rewind, and start from the beginning. Yeah, I think that that's a big, big uh, complaint uh, that uh, people have had in addition to the crowd noise being drowned out. And uh, this is a this is also an issue, I think, with their Serie A broadcast. And maybe, maybe uh, uh, you have more insight into this, Kyle. But I, I feel like um, s- some of Paramount Plus's Serie A broadcast, the crowd is completely drowned out, right? Or, or just uh, almost on mute. It, it, it's it's a very weird dynamic. I don't know if that's company policy with uh, across the leagues. I hadn't, uh, truthfully, like you, haven't watched much Brasileiro or uh, Argentine leagues, so didn't didn't notice it in those leagues. But I have noticed it in the Italian Serie Yeah, because you know that those crowds are not as as quiet and, and dim as it portrays to be. And you look in the stands, people are, are losing their minds. So yeah, it's a good question as to whether or not that's... Uh, company-oriented or just trying to promote the broadcast. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, Greg says, interesting about the UCL broker's view that the rights are undervalued, yet broadcasters who've had the right say there's uh, who've had the right say there's only so much they can wring out in ad dollars because of UEFA's holds on ad time. Makes me think that they see the path as higher streaming fees. That crew who are behind the International Champions Cup strike me as the kind of rich jerks who don't get that the average person has a price point they won't cross. If they succeed in getting the money they want, I'll bet the result is fewer games available overall, only the top teams, and you have to pay much more than the current Paramount Plus cost. We talk about the the rise in streaming dollars, Kartik. I mean, do you see this as the cost going up? And when we see ESPN Plus, they just raised their, or they will be raising their uh, monthly subscription cost to $9.99 as opposed to the $6.99 that it is now. And obviously their argument will be that they have more games and such. Do you see this kind of continuing in the future? Yes, and and ESPN started uh, at five ninety eight, I believe. So uh, their 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 costs are escalating pretty rapidly, which is something that um, I'm concerned about in terms of. Uh, 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 where this goes because we haven't seen the pay hikes yet with Peacock, which is only a two-year-old service, um, and Paramount Plus. But I assume as they continue to acquire properties and create new content, right, original content, in the case of those two, we're going to see some price hike. And um, ESPN Plus is now kind of cost prohibitive uh, if you don't do the Disney bundle. After this hike to nine ninety nine, I think it would be highly recommended for everybody out there to, to sign up for the Disney bundle, get Hulu and Disney Plus as well for what is effectively a lower price point per service, much lower price point per service. Yeah, I did see that uh, there was some analysis as to this bump in the ESPN Plus price, and someone did even comment that maybe it was just to kind of shove out the fact that they're really pushing the Disney bundle. And obviously the ESPN Plus price is not going to go down just because there's less Disney bundle subscribers, but I did see someone say that maybe that was a, a reason for the price hike in addition to the number of leagues they already have. That makes perfect sense, mm-hmm. actually, because I, I'm thinking they're cannibalizing their own audience unless they're trying to incentivize signups uh, for the Disney bundle. Yep. Buckles says CBS is doing a great job with the UEFA Champions League, and hopefully they will win the new bidding. However, I don't think they will. I think it's going to Amazon or Apple TV. 
I don't want to put you on the spot, Kartik, but uh, where do you see the UEFA Champions League rights going? I think they extend into next season, which is 2023-24, but after that, where do you think the uh, Champions League rights eventually end up? I think, um, and I was wrong about MLS. I said Amazon, it ended up being Apple. I, I think it's going to be Amazon, unless CBS really antes up and pays what relevant sports who are now the brokers for UEFA want. On the Spanish language side, I think uh, Univision is uh, is balking at the at the cost, but I don't think they can afford to lose the property. So I think you might see again an English Spanish split, or maybe Amazon takes the whole thing. But at this point, I, I think there's a very real possibility it goes to streaming. On the topic of women's soccer, Dave says, I am enjoying the women's summer tournaments, but I agree with you that there are too many games, especially in Comable and CONCACAF, that are sparsely attended, uncompetitive, low caliber, etc. Despite those drawbacks, it is exciting that women's soccer is growing globally, and great that so many games are available in English and Spanish. I think one thing that these tournaments try to do, Kartik, is grow the game, and, you know, they put these North American teams against the U.S. and against Canada to try and give them that experience of playing in a major tournament. But as Dave says, they are sparsely attended, particularly the CONCACAF Women's Championship in Mexico. Is there anything else that CONCACAF or Comobol could do to grow the game? I mean, we've seen a pretty rapid rise on the European side of the game. What could they do over here in the Americas to maybe uh, get more fans in the stadiums, maybe increase the level of competition, you know, things like that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the gap is so wide. I mean, the thing Chris and I talked about last week on the show, Kyle, was uh, the the level, the gap between the top women's international sides and then that next tier is much wider than in the men's game. So just by nature, you're getting all... And it was the same with the women's Euros. All these uncompetitive matches in the group stage or, or, or matches that were hardly watchable. I mean, I think the tournament started anew yesterday with the England-Spain match because the group stage was so... Uh, it was not. It was not only uh, lopsided, but it was pretty predictable. I don't think, uh, with the exception of maybe Austria beating Norway, w- there was a single upset in the. Uh, and that's a that's a possible upset. Maybe it really wasn't an upset. The entire group stage. So I, I actually don't know. I don't have an answer for this. I mean, it's just there's just sparse attendances when matches are uncompetitive. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we'll wrap up with this about Old Firm. Chris says, A few days ago, I talked with one of my Scottish friends about conference and league realignment in college football, which he watches in addition to soccer, and he brought up the possibility of something similar happening between the Old Firm clubs, which are Celtic and Rangers, and the Premier League or the English Football League. My question to both of you is, what are some of the pros and cons should the Old Firm clubs, along with the likes of maybe Aberdeen or Hearts, ever decide to join the Premier League or the English Football League? This is really interesting to me, Kartik, because there's been so much change in college sports. We got USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten, having to play Rutgers in New Jersey on a random Saturday <laughs> night as the, the likely outcome of that. But this is really interesting to me just because it seems like that's where American sports, at least at the college level, is going, is that there's these super conferences and there's, you know, uh, Oklahoma, Texas joining the SEC, USC, UCLA joining the Big Ten, and then everything else is going to be lumped into the Pac-12 or Big 12, whatever you want to call it. But uh, what are, in your eyes, what are the pros and cons of what Chris is proposing here, which is the major Scottish sides entering and joining the English Football League? So there was a lot more talk about this 15, 20 years ago. At the time, there was a feeling that um, it would happen. And the question at the time was, hey, do you put Rangers and Celtic directly in the Premier League, maybe expand the league to 22 or relegate 
uh, for uh, from, uh, I, I'm trying to figure out how the math would have worked, but relegate more teams than normal one year and then bring them into the Premier League? Or do you make them start in League Two and, and work their way, which was at that time called Division Three, and work their way up the, the pyramid? And there was never any sort of consensus on this. And then um, in the interim period, what happened is English football became much more lucrative, much more money flowed into the Premier League. It, it became... Uh, in terms of business and, and, and finance, the elite league in the world, and the Scottish league began to flop, and then Rangers had their own issues. They were ended up being relegated for financial improprieties. Scotland rearranged their pyramid. So the talk has really cooled, but there was there felt like there was an inevitability about this um, 14 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, 20 years ago, the same way I think there has always been an inevitability in college sports that um, – that Texas would leave the Big 12. I think that was the very clear thing that it, that got put off by the fact that they got to do the Longhorn Network and, and partnered with ESPN on that, but they would have been gone in 2010 from the Big 12. Um, and they would have gone, I think at that time, they probably would have gone to what was then the Pac-10. Um, so it ended up working out for the SEC that there was this delay and the Pac-10, now Pac-12, got weaker in that period um, than, uh, than they had been in, in uh, a decade earlier. But... Um, I don't think this will happen now, and I think the other ramification is if they left the Scottish system, it would absolutely decimate Scottish football with virtually no revenue, no television interest, uh, and no a broader interest in the league that remained. And you have already a very tribal nature and, and, and some uh, ugly incidents around Scottish football. That tribalism would probably get much worse. So... I think uh, for those reasons, it's not going to happen. But a uh, good shout because um, there was there seemed to be an inevitability 15, 20 years ago that this would happen and that uh, uh, it would be at least those two. Maybe they would take four teams from Scotland and uh, and that the Scottish League would become kind of like the Welsh League is now, which is just this uh, this secondary competition as the top four Welsh clubs are all in the English system. Um, by the way, uh, speaking of, of, of media, should mention, Kyle, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more as uh, the time approaches, but the Wrexham documentary by Ryan Reynolds uh, will be out in about a month on Hulu. Yeah, uh, I believe be it comes to. Yeah, it should be really good. Mm -hmm. August 24th, I believe, is the date. Now, Kurt, could you talk about, I want to stick with this old firm thing because it really does fascinate me because I'm such a, I'm a big American sports fan, but you talk about how it would absolutely eliminate, well, not eliminate by the or the literal sense, but it would just do crazy damage to the Scottish Premiership. How much does this hypothetical, again, very hypothetical, how much does adding Celtic and Rangers, Aberdeen Hearts, how much does that add to the Premier League or even the Championship League One, League Two, uh, if they get down there, how much does it? How much does adding those four teams benefit English soccer? That's a great point, um, and I should have addressed that in the first uh, uh, first uh, thing I said because I think now it adds less than it did 15 years ago when it was talked about much more seriously. Because Rangers and Celtic, um, I don't want to offend any of their fans, and I know they have some of the most passionate fan bases uh, in the U.S. of any European club. But they are, have diminished as, as uh, global brands, as even brands in the United States, I would say, in the last 15 or 20 years. And you have random Premier League brands like Everton and West Ham and, and now Man City and Spurs, uh, Newcastle, that have more fans now in this country and more interest and more re name recognition. More people know about Newcastle United than know about Celtic now. Uh, they didn't at the time. So very, um, very Clear example, 2003, 2002, 2003, Martin O'Neill leaves 
uh, Leicester, where he had won a couple League Cups as a manager and had gotten to a couple more finals and had qualified for Europe a number of times. Martin O'Neill leaves Leicester to go to Celtic. Very clear upward move in his career. Only 15 years later, Brendan Rodgers does the reverse. After winning all sorts of trophies at Celtic, Leicester comes calling, and 15 years later, Leicester is a bigger job than Celtic. 15 years earlier, Celtic was clearly a bigger job than Leicester. Um, Same thing with Gerrard, leaving Rangers to go to Aston Villa, right? That doesn't happen 20 years ago. A guy, a manager does not leave, um, does not leave Rangers for Aston Villa. If anything, it's the reverse. So, I don't think they do as much for the for the Premier League or for the, the Football League at this point as they would have 20 years ago. Yeah, on the topic of their international branch, this is a fun little anecdote I can produce. Uh, when I was playing soccer growing up here in uh, Pinellas County in St. Petersburg, there's a, a team called, uh, it was called Gulf Coast United, who eventually got, I don't know if it's sponsored, just took on the, the name of, uh, they became Florida Celtics, so they had the green hoops on their jerseys and, you know, became famous for that, and then that was probably, like you say, 15, 20 years ago, back when I was uh, playing in like a under-7, under-8 team. And then not too long goes by, and then you see uh, an Everton pop up. Uh, I'm trying to remember. There's, uh, there's other teams, but and then I don't even know if uh, the Florida Celtic is still a thing. I imagine it is, but that definitely that brand has diminished over the last couple of years. As, as you mentioned, we see other teams in England in particular definitely try to increase their international presence here in the United States. So I think it's an interesting point to make. Yeah, that definitely happened, uh, Kyle. In the interest of full disclosure, I'll say I uh, I was consulted by Everton when they made their move into youth soccer in the Tampa Bay area. So had some conversations with them. And now that was at least a decade ago, I mm-hmm. want to say. Um, so, and I, and I know they're not the only one, they're just the one that happened to contact me because I'm in Florida to talk about it. So, uh, yeah. And I, I don't see Celtic and Ranger team Rangers teams popping up uh, like they used to either. So that's a really good point. Yep. Well, Card, that seems like a pretty good place to wrap up. I want to thank all of you for listening. And in addition to the podcast, there are a lot of other ways to connect with us here at World Soccer Talk. One of them is the daily newsletter, and you can also just visit worldsoccertalk.com, which is updated 24 seven. If you want to listen to this World Soccer Talk podcast, all you have to do is ask your smart speaker. So thank you for listening, and you can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Audioboom, Overcast, and, of course, over at worldsoccertalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media, and please give us a review. But Kartik, as everyone's watching, either the... European Women's Championships this weekend or the summer friendlies that are all around, what should they do? Enjoy your football. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.